They come from the past and the future. There is nothing wrong with your radio. Listen. With the single most important interview since God talked to Moses. The voices you are hearing are the voices from Krypton. Welcome back to Voices from Krypton, or VFK as we oh so coolly refer to it. And this, the final part of our interview with writer Will Murray. Things wrap up with a discussion of the enduring popularity of pulp heroes and what it would take to expose them to a mass audience, as well as the pulp influence on the Indiana Jones film series. You know, I'm not saying the audience is huge for these pulp heroes and stuff, but there's definitely a dedicated following for pulp heroes to this day. What is it, do you think, about those characters who are not alive, like on the Marvel Cinematic Universe or something, and yet still have this dedicated following all these years later. What is it about these pulp characters that well, is allowing the, them to live on the way they are? The best of them were well-written and well-conceived. Doc Savage sold very well in paperback in the 60s, 70s, 80s. Millions of copies. The Shadow did not because it was written on a different level. It didn't translate as well to the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s audience. Um <clears throat> I, I I would say, you know, there's always the issue of who, who gets into print first. Doc Savage got into print first. It grabbed a big audience. So when they started reprinting the spider and some of the other characters, well, the audience had already been captured and maybe there wasn't enough disposable income to buy the spider. Or maybe they didn't pick the best spiders. Or maybe the spider just didn't translate as well. Uh I, I think the writing and the characterization and, and the inventiveness of the stories is always a big thing. We talked a minute ago about why um, Doc Savage and such characters haven't done well in the big screen. Well, the George Powell movie was sabotaged by having its budget undercut. Uh, it might still not have been a great movie. And only a few short years later, they did Indiana Jones. The difference between Hollywood and the early 70s and Hollywood around 1980 is they would shoot on location. They would put real money into films that used to be B films. And Spielberg and Lucas and those guys took the B movie and elevated it with better budgets and production and scripts and said, we can do these old style movies on a level that everybody will like them. And and they're not just Saturday matinee type of uh, weekend movies uh with doc savage you know as i said the 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 first movie was a miserable failure but condy nast and and norma dent lester dent's widow co-owned the movie rights for a long time and you know when two people own the rights it's not always easy to get a deal together you know And, and one party may feel like we don't want to share the the revenue so let's just wait until the other party is deceased and uh um <clears throat> when we do do a movie we 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 have it. here's another thing this is very important recently i saw on facebook a, a a guy who used to work in animation talking about how he once pitched a doc savage cartoon to a studio or a network and when he came back a week later he says you know what did you think of my uh Doc Savage pitch, oh, we threw it in the wastebasket. Why'd you do that? Well, every three months, somebody pitches us Doc Savage, and we go to Condit Ast about rights. They want a million dollars. Okay. So the problem, and it's nobody's fault, because Condit Ast has had many regimes over the last 30, 40 years. 
And they do, you know, these Street and Smith characters, Doc Savage, The Shadow, etc. It's not their thing. It's not where the money is. They just hap- it just happened that Doc Savage and Nick Carter did well in paperback. And, and, and so there was some income stream, but it was not terribly consequential. The problem is that in the period of time, we're not talking 40, 50 years, in the period of time that Marvel and DC characters were steadily infiltrating the public consciousness with TV shows and movies, Doc Savage and the Shadow were essentially uh, prisoners of condensed expectations of what, what their rights were worth, correctly or not. So we have Spider-Man movies because we had Spider-Man cartoons. Everybody knows who Spider-Man is. Right. Doc Savage may have sold millions of copies in paperback, but it's not the same as being on TV or even on the old Saturday morning cartoon slots. If there had been Shadow and, and, and uh, Doc Savage cartoons, minimally cartoons, never mind TV shows or movies, they would be in the public consciousness and their value would have been that much greater. All during that time when those characters were just an occasional movie, an occasional something or other, comic book or whatever, Marvel and other characters, even obscure characters, have essentially seized the high ground of the popular culture. Everybody knows who knows who those characters are. And so basically Condé Nast rightfully held out for what they felt was their price, and there were no takers, ex- with the rare exception. And so we don't so we don't have these characters in the public consciousness the way they should be. So they've lost generations of consumers because they weren't they weren't introduced to these characters on on the mass market level. Movies, TVs, cartoons, whatever. Yeah. You think they lower their price, maybe, uh, to get something moving. Do you know what I mean? If they are really going for like a million dollars, well, I can't, the right you know, time, I but, can't yeah. speak to their thinking, but I, I, I suspect that they, you know, it's a corporation. So more than one person is involved in these decisions. They they came up with the price they felt was the, the minimum price they would sell these rights for. Because don't forget, if you held on to the property, maybe the next guy will do your price. Right. They seem not to have understood the budgets that that are practical because say to say we want a million dollars to do a doc savage cartoon that's not realistic right do, do they think we don't care we'll wait till somebody comes along who does or we'll wait till someone who wants to do a movie maybe we don't want to sell a cartoon we just want to sell a movie because that's where the money is but the money's in licensing and merchandising right cartoons drive that tv shows drive that movies drive that other things drive that so you know this has been going on a long time, so as I say, there's nobody to blame. But it's it's a misstep because no one they could not in the, in their view of the world they did not understand any more than you and I understood when we when it was happening around us that just to use an example that Marvel Comics was climbing to the top of the world cultural popular cultural pyramid. You know, there was a time when sports was at the top of that pyramid, and they still are. But now everybody knows who Spider-Man is, Captain America, Nick Fury. I wrote a Nick Fury novel once, and nobody knew who he was. Right. Now, it's like everybody knows who Nick Fury is. Of course. Iron Man? Well, that's because Samuel Jackson, he's made the character indelible. Right. uh, In multiple movies. So you can't not know who Nick Fury is. 
But he was around a long time before everybody knew who he was. Absolutely. It took that leap to that medium to allow people to get to know who Nick Fury was yeah. and care. So the value of of selling the rights to someone who could do a decent job and get it out there, even if a TV show flops or a cartoon lasts one season, it's still out there. Yeah. If people, more eyeballs see it than would see a comic book or a paperback novel. Uh, and that's that's how you you know you capture market share in the popular culture exposure. It's not just about money because it's an investment. You, in, you sometimes you invest in a character by giving the rights to someone who can do something with it that will reach audiences, and you know it comes back to you that maybe ten years after that cartoon, somebody wants to do a movie. Right. It's not even ten years anymore. People are doing. People are doing movies and TV shows about characters so obscure that if you had told me in the 60s or 70s, oh, they're going to make an Aquaman movie or Ant-Man movie, I would have laughed at you. Right. Ant-Man is, there's three Ant-Man movies now, one about to come out. They're, they do very well. Ant-Man was a failed character. Right. I read him in the 60s. You, you know, you couldn't give him away. Aquaman was a joke. He grossed a billion dollars. Yeah. <clears throat> and it's like, these these were... These were second and third tier characters right. when they were first. The Hulk, the Hulk was canceled after six issues, as you know. It was, it was a, it was a, it was a, it was a, it flopped. Right. It was a misfire, but they didn't give up on him. They kept him alive in the comics, just as they kept Ant Man alive in different incarnations. And by not giving up, the accumulation of eyeballs who who, who read the Hulk or saw Hulk cartoons or toys or whatever just grew and grew and grew, and everybody knows who the Hulk is. And yet, like, and, and, you know, what I said earlier, it's true, though, yet these characters still have life, which is really impressive. I mean, okay, yeah. granted, it's not out there the way it should be, and we both agree it should be out there in a much bigger way. It just fascinates me that these characters that could have very easily slipped into, you know, oblivion uh, are still kicking. I mean, it's really well, fascinating. One of the things, and I thought about <laughs> And one of the things that made the Indiana Jones movie so successful, one of the many things, one of the many things that made Doc Savage so successful and Remo Williams so, so successful is they were action-adventure movies or action-adventure series. Right. And those that genre has, if you look at the history of paperbacks, that genre was all, all but extinct for a long time. And it was done in movies. Not as much. It's easier to do a detective story, whether it's prose or 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 TV or or a western, whether it's prose or TV or movies, because the elements are easily, you know, utilized. You you shoot on a city street, you shoot on a western ranch, and there was a time when Hollywood actors they all had to know how to ride horses because there were so many westerns that were done. Right. High adventure stories require a lot more research in terms of writing, just the, the script or the novel, whatever you want. And uh, they require much more scope uh, and they require a much larger character. I mean, Sam Spade is a larger than life detective on the scale of the ki kind of books and movies he operated in. But Doc Savage has to be a Superman to operate on a global scale. Remo Williams has to be a Superman to be a government operator operative who operates on a global scale. This is why the Anita Jones movie did so well. Its scope was huge. It took us around the world. 
it was high adventure. It's hard to write high adventure because of the research involved and because you're dealing in, in a greater a greater canvas than if you're doing a Western or a uh, detective story or a suspense story. I mean, even the spy story, the spy stories were high adventure. James Bond was high adventure. You see the thread here, a global adventure. It doesn't always have to be global, but it has the potential to be global. James Bond, uh, Indiana Jones, even Star Wars. The scope was huge. People were not in static locations. We're on this planet, now we're going to this planet. We're in Egypt, now we're going to Morocco. Now we're going to Africa. Now we're going back to the U.S. That change of scenery, the characters roaming the world, having much larger than life adventures than, than Sam Spade or uh, Wyatt Earp or those characters who were good in, their, in the context of their times and their worlds, but they were limited characters. Right. If you're going to see a movie, you want changes of scenery. You want the characters moving around. Remo was great. I'd put him, you know, he'd be in, in the U.S. a lot. He'd go to Mexico. He'd go to uh, Europe. He'd be in Russia. He'd be there. He, You know, it was boom. They were always on airplanes trying to get from here to there to do the next part of the mission because the, the threats were global. The challenges were global. So then, you know, this leads to the last section of this, which is, and again, you address some of it just now, I guess. But but as I mentioned to you, I am doing this oral history of Indiana Jones. Mm -hmm. And and I am wondering, you know, if we were to look back at movie serials, pulp and all that sort of stuff. And, and again, I know you just said some of this. What do you think Indy took from those things? And and in what way would you say it modernized it for, to make it so palatable for the audience? Well, it's funny to say he modernized the story set in the 30s, but I, know. I think the production values made that the, the the willingness to take the stories on on the A-list level of a movie or the A-level, A-picture level of a movie was a big thing. You know, I mean, if they'd have made that movie 10 years before, it would have been like Doc Savage, you know, right. a movie that played in drive-ins for the most part and maybe on weekend matinees for teenagers and young, young adults. The, 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 the sense that the great the old serials were a lot of fun, but their production values were very limited. Uh, the, the sense that you could take that idea and amplify it into a full-blown, technicolor, well-scripted, well-acted, shot-on-location film, giving you an immersive experience. Because Indiana Jones isn't that well-developed a character. He's an archaeologist who, you know, who, who goes on his own adventures. He's not Doc Savage. He doesn't have a, he's not an altruistic adventurer. He's not, you know, uh, a superhero. He's pretty normal-sized, but he does have the the scope. He, he wasn't, the Rages of Lost Ark had fantastic scope, you yeah. know. He went from here to there and everything, something was always happening. And it didn't get bogged down in, you know, some of the Hollywood stuff like the unnecessary romance. Uh, everything was was focused on the, the main story and the, there were no concessions to we need, you know, we need something. We need a romantic subplot for the for the female audience. I went to that movie with my girlfriend at the time, who was the character, uh, who was the woman I based Squirrel Girl on at Marvel Comics. Right. And she was into comics and that stuff. I mean, she went nuts. 
she was hitting me on the shoulder when in certain scenes because she was so excited. Like this was the greatest movie she ever saw. And right. she's a, she was a 20-something girl. And this is what, 1980? Yeah, 81, you know, yeah. You know, one of the great changes that's happened in my lifetime is the, the generational changes where women, young adults, teenage girls are now interested in some of the things that I grew up in that girls of my generation back in the 67 weren't particularly interested in. You know, right. modern girls have their favorite superheroes, you know, when back then, you know, Nancy Drew would have been it or someone on TV. Right. Um, so the fact that, you know, again, a long answer, Indiana Jones appealed to a broad demographic, even though the 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 inspiration was 1940s movie serials, you know, a very narrow demographic. Right. Right. And I guess I guess that's what I meant when I said modernize it, because somehow they did. And in the ways you said, they made it work for an audience on a widescreen, a wide ranging appeal, whereas the movie serials wouldn't have or even pulps, you know. Mm -hmm in the modern day would not have worked. So. We saw that in Western films for a long time. The Westerns was, were a Saturday, you know, matinee thing. And once in a while they do a more adult Western like stagecoach, but it wasn't until the 1950s where they started to see the Western as a, a serious vehicle for drama. So you get the high noons and the Shanes. And then on TV, they went from the Lone Ranger to Wyatt Earp to the Virginian and, 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 and instead of being escapist adventure stuff, the Western became the, the a vehicle for real drama about real people in a specific time frame. Right. And so, you know, that was Hollywood taking the Western more seriously than they had before and saying, you know, there's, there's real stories we can tell here. So that's what Spielberg and Lucas did with, with pulp Saturday morning matinee movie serial stuff. We can tell a more serious story, but still have our tongues in our cheeks or at least have fun with it and not take it so seriously. It's grim all the time. We hope you enjoyed our interview with Will Murray. Be sure to check out Will's website at adventuresinbronze.com. And please make Voices from Krypton a part of your regular podcast listening. Subscribe, give us a five-star review, and tell your friends about us. Thanks very much for listening, and we'll see you next time.